Well, good to see you guys. Happy Easter to all of you. And a welcome to St. James. And for everybody who's watching on the live stream, we're glad that you're here with us too. Let me run over a few announcements real quick, and then we'll begin worship. Uh, there are no Bible studies today, and there is no uh, time of prayer here at the church tonight. Uh, however, this week, everything is going to be back to normal as far as youth group on Tuesday nights, uh, ladies' Bible study on Saturday mornings. Um, men's Bible study on Tuesday mornings is going to take a few weeks off, and I'll let you know when that's going to pick up again. Wednesday evenings, we're going to begin, uh, we haven't done this uh, since the beginning of Lent, we're going to start our study of C.S. Lewis's uh, screw tape letters. That's going to begin again on Wednesday evening. We do that on Zoom. We're going to read this week, we're going to be talking about letter six. If you want to participate in that, uh, let me know. I can get you a link to that for that uh, Zoom meeting. Um, after both services today, um, this service and the 1015 service, uh, there's going to be an Easter egg hunt for the kids afterwards. So if you want to, uh, uh, families, uh, head downstairs after the service, and uh, the next service will be going on up here, uh, but you guys can do the Easter egg uh, hunt, at, hunt after this service. One more housekeeping note, and this is for those of you who are in the sanctuary right now. The sermon hymn this morning is Christ Has Arisen, Alleluia. Uh, the hymn number is, the hymn book number is in there. You're going to need to use the hymn book for that one because somehow one of the lines got left off on, um, in the, the music in the bulletin. So when we get to the sermon hymn, uh, just use your hymn book. Turn to page 466 and we'll sing it out of there. Okay, that's all I've got. Why don't you stand and we'll pray and then we'll begin with the invocation and the Easter acclamation. Let's pray. Uh, God, this morning we celebrate uh, your power over death. And uh, through the resurrection of your son, Jesus, your commitment to make all things new. Uh, we need you, Father. We don't need uh, comfort in our head primarily. We don't need new knowledge of you primarily, although those things are good. We need your presence. And so we pray this morning that you would meet with us here in worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sins to God our Father. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Please stay standing for the hymn.
psalm this morning is actually uh, the great hymn that Moses and the people of Israel sing after they cross uh, the Red Sea, delivered from Egypt, from Exodus 15. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all peoples, the veil that's spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pistol reading is from 1 Corinthians 15. It's Paul's recounting of uh, his resurrection experience and basically saying the resurrection is history. And so if you're going to think about it, you've got to go to history. It's not a psychological thing primarily or a therapeutic thing. It either did or it didn't happen. This is Paul's point is that if, if it happened, there are people you could go and ask, did you see this? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely, untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it wasn't I, but the grace of God that's with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Says a ring. 
resurrection of Jesus is the most real thing in the entire universe. It's the thing by which all other real things are judged. There's a popular misconception about the resurrection of Jesus, and that is that it's uh, something that's uh, designed, that it's a metaphor to help us see the good in life or um, uh, to uh, you know, find some place inside of ourselves where we can get comfort. I was, uh, um, we had a funeral here on Friday, and I, was, I preached about the resurrection at the funeral, which is what you do, right? And after the funeral, I was talking to a guy just briefly, and he said to me, he said, hey, I've got my own uh, version of resurrection. There's a, a favorite type of music that I go to and I listen to uh, whenever I'm feeling down, uh, whenever things are going bad. I have this type of music that I go and I, I listen to this music. I go to, this con- I go to these concerts. And this, of course, is a good, right? I mean, uh, music is supposed to cheer you up. I, sometimes music cheers you up. Uh, but this is not what Jesus means by resurrection. He was saying, okay, you have your version of resurrection. Jesus, that makes you feel better. I have my ver- he was super nice too. I have my version of resurrection. I have this favorite music artist I like. But that's not what Jesus is saying. The resurrection of Jesus is not something that happens inside your head. It's not something that happens inside your heart. That's also a popular Christian misconception. This is, uh, I grew up singing a hymn in the church that I went to uh, with the line in it, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. It's this personal thing inside of me. Jesus rose from the dead, and that means that I get comfort and hope and peace. No, actually, Jesus rising from the dead is something that happens outside of us, and it happens to us. It's not something that happens inside of us. It's quite possible that Jesus rising from the dead means you won't have comfort. There are sometimes when it's the last, it's the furthest thing from therapy, the resurrection of Jesus. Sometimes it's your ticket to suffering. It's not anything that's designed to make us feel better, although, you know, I hope that we all feel better. The main point I want to make this morning is that the resurrection of Jesus is really real. Let's read the gospel reading if we can. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 16. This, actually, this is the last. In, in our oldest manuscripts of Mark, this is the end of Mark. It's got a weird ending. It just sort, sort of cuts off here. This is it, though. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the gospel of the Lord. There are four things from this text I want to point out to you about the realness of the resurrection. One is that it's historically real. Of course, we always have to start off with that when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Two, it's psychologically real. Three, it's theologically real. And fourth, it's missionally real. So the first thing is is that it's historically real. 
So, I mean, so I'm going to argue for the next few minutes just one tiny argument. There's a billion of these arguments. I'm just going to give you one, t- one tiny argument to argue that the resurrection of Jesus really happened. And I, and I realize that I'm preaching two things. I realize I'm preaching to the choir to some extent that most of you who would show up in a place like this on Easter Sunday have already bought into the notion that God became flesh, was killed for our sins, and rose from the dead. But some of you don't. I know that there are some people who watch on the live stream who are struggling with this sort of thing. Second of all, and this is where we're headed eventually in this sermon, Jesus rising from the dead is real. You might think it's real as well, but it's something else to actually believe it, to live in it. And that's where we're headed, okay? But first of all, it's historically real. One of the main features of all four of the accounts of Jesus' resurrection but especially the Mark account, is that there are no male followers of Jesus. In Mark's account, the male followers don't show up at all, except Jesus says, go and find the guys who ran away when I got arrested and tell them it's okay and I'm going to meet them in Galilee. The only people at the scene are women, Jesus' women followers. This, some of you have heard this before maybe, this is not the way you would do it. If you were Mark and you were trying to convince a Greco-Roman culture that a man rose from the dead, you would not put the initial testimony in the mouths of women. Now, I, I got to be real careful here because I don't want anybody. This it's, it's happened to me before that people have people have watched part of the live stream, gotten upset with something I said, turned it off, emailed me and said I'm upset with what you said, and I had to say go back and watch it again five minutes after you turned it off. I explain what I said, but so I have to be real careful here. I am not saying that this is an appropriate view of women, what I'm about to say. It was the view of women in Jesus' day, though, okay? In the Jewish, in the Jewish context, in the Greco-Roman context at large, but in a Jewish context, women were forbidden from testifying in court because they were inherently and intrinsically unreliable. That's how the culture saw them. In fact, uh, the book of Deuteronomy does not agree with this, by the way. But the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19, has a list of, it's a, it's a list of rules for witnesses in court. Now, if you read those, they're pretty, pretty normal. You know, they've got to be truthful. It's got to be attested by multiple people. If you read Josephus, the Jewish historian, he recounts those rules as well. But somehow along, along the way, he has gotten another rule from his culture added into it. This is not in Scripture, but Josephus adds this to Deuteronomy 19. It says this. From women, let no evidence be accepted in a court of law because of their giddiness and impudence. So women are, you know, giddy. They're inherently, they're just, uh, their brains are here and there and, and flighty, and they're impudent. They don't have a filter. They just say whatever they want. Josephus says because of that, you never let a woman testify in a court of law. There's lots of other like things like this in the Mishnah saying women along with um, Tax collectors, along with whoremongers, are not allowed to testify. They're put into that same category. There's this famous, uh, 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 the morning prayer that Jewish men of Jesus' day would pray every morning. In fact, it's, it's actually still prayed in some circles, the Jewish morning prayer. The, men, the male version goes like this. Part of it, at least, goes like this. I thank God. God, I thank you that you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Women are intrinsically devalued in this culture. 
their testimony is not to be accepted at all, which makes it surprising that if Mark was making this story up and trying to convince people that it was, he knew it was false, but he was trying to convince people that it was true, that he would put the mouth of this initial first level on the scene eyewitness testimony in the mouth of women. N.T. Wright says this in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. He says this, even if we suppose that Mark made up most of his material, it will not do to have him making up a would-be apologetic legend about an empty tomb and having women be the ones who find it. The point's been repeated over and over in scholarship, but its full impact has not always been felt. Women were simply not acceptable as legal witnesses. Now, thankfully, we don't have this sort of notion about women not being able to give testimony in court now. So you have to kind of shift things around in your mind to understand exactly what Mark is doing here, and the other gospel writers, but especially Mark, because like Peter and the lot don't show up at all in Mark. It's just Jesus and the women. It would be like, now, please listen to the whole sermon. I'm not saying that this is the appropriate view of women. In fact, I'm going to make the opposite point here in a second. But this is their view of women. It would be like, if you said, hey, I saw so-and-so rise from the dead, a friend of yours, or, and, or no, you said, I know they rose from the dead, and I asked you, how do you know they rose from the dead? And you said, four people saw it. And I said, who was it? And you said, it was a heroin addict, a micro lender, a prostitute, and a guy who was really, really drunk you would say, I don't know if that's the best testimony. That's what Mark is doing. Now, we don't see it because, let me tell you why. This is a little side point here. Tom Holland, who is a secular historian, he writes largely about the ancient uh, Greek and Roman world. He's written like histories about Caesar and stuff. He, he's a self-described secular. He's not a religious person. He has written a book recently entitled Dominion in which one of his arguments, the purpose of the book Dominion is to point out that the things that our culture values, equality, justice, love, are all non-pagan qualities. They are all strictly Christian qualities, which our culture only has ever been able to get from Christianity. And now that we've abandoned Christianity, we're left with these values, but no philosophical underpinning. And wondering, like, how long is this going to stand up? One of the points he makes in this is this. In the ancient world, in the pagan world, women were incredibly devalued. It is only in Christianity that women were made equal. It's only in Christianity, it's only in the earliest church that you see women giving, being given legitimate leadership positions in the church. For instance, Phoebe in Romans chapter 16. It's only women in the ancient world who are allowed to sit at the feet of the teacher like Mary and Martha in the Gospels. Why is this? Because it's only Christianity which insists that all men and all women and all races and all socioeconomic groups are all equally made in God's image. This theology, this doctrine of the image of God is the only one that gives value to women. Mark has no problem saying Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, the other Mary, Salome, they all saw Jesus, he has no problem doing that because he believes that in Jesus Christ there is no male or female, female, Galatians 3. But it's pretty gutsy of him to say it out loud in a document that's designed to prove to other people in the mouth of these supposedly disreputable witnesses that Jesus rose from the dead. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? 
It is an argument for the historicity of this that Mark would have the guts to include women as first-level testimony. Okay, it's not just, there's other arguments for the historicity of the resurrection as well. I'm going to come, up, come, come back briefly to one more later. It's also psychologically real. Look at verse 3. The women are going to the tomb, and they're saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Um, Mark is the only gospel that has the women having this conversation about how are we going to do this? What are the details here? And you'll know, so like I said, we had a, a funeral here on Friday. You'll know if you've ever been involved with a funeral that this is like, this is pretty normal, this sort of um, the busyness and this like, okay, things have to get done. Let's get going. Anybody who's ever like planned a funeral for a loved one knows that sometimes there's not a lot of space to grieve because of the logistics of getting everything planned and everything organized and the estate settled and the funeral home dealt with and all those of the life insurance company called, all those things. And there's actually something about us as humans, especially that some people are more like this than others, that when a moment of grief happens like this, there's this impulse to be busy, to do. There's a psychological reality that's like, okay, the details have to get taken care of. You ever known somebody like this? who when somebody close to them dies, their immediate impulse is like to do the laundry. Um, I'll never forget my father-in-law. When, my, uh, when Angela's brother uh, passed away real suddenly, uh, my father-in-law sat down and got back from the hospital and within a half hour sat down and said, I'm going to watch this college basketball game. And here's what he said. I've been planning on watching this game for months now, and I'm not going to stop now. And one of the things he's doing is this. Right, there was this book written four or five years ago called um, The Worm at the Core on the role of, uh, of life and death. It was written by a team of three or four uh, psychologists and uh, sociologists. And they were uh, advocating um, a certain theory, and it's called terror management theory. It's a horrible sounding name for a theory. Terror management theory. It's building on the work of uh, Ernest Becker, who in the 1970s wrote a really important book called The Denial of Death. And one of the things they're arguing in there is this, in this book, hang on with me here, talking about psychology and handling death and how it matches up with what the women are really experiencing. One of the things they argue in that book is that we as humans, almost all of our lives are coping with the horror that is death. There's different ways to do this. One is avoidance, you know, you can get hobbies or uh, people do this all the time. We all pretend like we're not going to die. At least we get it out of our head. Another way to do that is this, they say, is that culture creates these values. And one of the values is like getting things done. And when somebody dies, it's completely out of your control, especially if it's unplanned, you don't know what's happening. There's something random and like um, horribly incongruous about Somebody is there one minute, and then the next minute they're completely gone. And so in that moment of lack of control, and knowing that I can't control, there's something about us that will find something that you can control. And in your mind, you might not say this out loud, but you search for comfort and meaning and value in that thing that's still within your grasp. So somebody that you know dies suddenly. And for some of you, the impulse to mow the yard or to, um, you know, to do the laundry, or to arrange the flowers, or to prepare a meal. That's actually a way to avoid like, grappling with death. And what the resurrection of Jesus is saying is that these details, I'm not saying they're not important, right? you got to do the laundry. You need to mow your yard. Somebody's got to plan a funeral. 
but actually, as far as getting meaning from them and finding that, okay, I can control this part of my life. The rest of my life is out of control, but this part of my life I can't control for the next few minutes. That that's actually not necessary because when Jesus rose from the dead, nothing is ever out of control ever again. The worst thing that could ever happen to you comes undone in the end. The thing that you're most afraid of, the thing that stands back of your fear of abandonment or your fear of not being accepted or your fear of not being good enough, which is your impending death, in the end is done away with. Ultimate control happens at the resurrection. Now, I'm making it sound real easy, right? Like, so the women have all these details, and then Jesus rose from the dead, and I don't have to worry about that anymore. It's not that easy, right? I mean, the women find out that Jesus rose from the dead, and it still doesn't solve their psychological issues, which is why Mark ends with verse 8, which is just crazy. Again, if you're writing a gospel to convince people that this guy rose from the dead, this is not the way you would do it. The women find out that Jesus rose from the dead, and in verse 8, what do they do? They go out and they flee from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's remarkable that the very last word in the Gospel of Mark is the word afraid. Jesus rises from the dead, and they have three responses, trembling, astonishment, and fear. Trembling is, that's like the physical reaction that you have with fear, you know, sort of the shaking, um, uh, you know, shaking in your boots is a phrase that we have. But we all have physical reactions to fear, you know, the increased heart rate or feeling cold at your extremities. This is what they're experiencing because they're freaked out. The next word is amazement, astonishment, I'm sorry. In the Bible, the word astonishment in the New Testament, that's the exact same word that's used when people go into trances. So people have visions. Peter has a vision of you know, the, the unclean food coming down the sheet. And he goes into astonishment. It's the exact same word. He goes into a trance. It's this idea like this alternate mental state, which if anybody's ever like, had something cataclysmic happen to them, like the loss of somebody, or you think that somebody died and then you find out that they didn't die, you'll know what this is like, this sort of like out-of-body experience where you almost, you can't even think straight. You're just beside yourself. This is literally, this is what this means. It's actually the word we get ecstasy from, although in Greek it's not so positive all the time. It's this out of body, outside, standing outside of yourself. This is what they're experiencing. And then the last word, of course, is fear. They're not rejoicing in faith. Like I said, if, if you're Mark and you're going to write this gospel where this miraculous thing happens and God becomes flesh and then rises from the dead, Everybody would be like, yes, awesome, we win. And that's not how it works. Why is that? Well, you know why it is. Jesus rose from the dead. Many of you are already convinced of that. Many of you are already living in reality of that. But has that, has that eliminated completely your trembling and your astonishment and your fear? No, it's going to take more than that. Not just the news of his resurrection, but a meeting with the risen Christ is what's going to finally cure that. Now, if, how does that work? You just got to put that on hold. Look, can, will you come back next week and we'll talk about that? Because Thomas has that experience. Thomas finds out that Jesus is risen from the dead, but it's, it doesn't register with him yet. And Jesus uses three tools in John 21 to make it real to Thomas. So we'll talk about that next week. Meanwhile, right now, I just want you to see that this is not fake and made up. This is not some sort of like, there were these women, and they were really, really sad. And then they saw Jesus, and then they were really, really happy. No, it's actually 
quite visceral, quite real. It's very realistic what's being described here. The story is not just historically real, it's also psychologically real. Third, it's theologically real. What I mean by that is, so theology is the study of God, right? This story matches up, this is what I mean by theologically real. This story matches up with what we know about God from the Bible. Now, if you don't know about God from the Bible, just, you're going to take my word for this for the next couple of minutes. And actually, it's kind of a bad thing to say. Don't take my word for it. Like, go get yourself in the story. Go read the story of the Bible, and you'll see that what I'm saying is true. The Bible describes a God who is completely and infinitely in love with his creation and in love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Infinitely. The Bible also describes this same God as infinitely powerful and able to do whatever it is he wants within the bounds of his holy character. Infinitely powerful. This is the kind of thing that you would expect to happen from a God who is infinitely loving and infinitely powerful. Not a pagan God who is limited by his, you know, the, 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 how far his fingertips can reach. Not a cultural God like money, which is only good until it runs out. It's only good if you have it. Or sex, it's only good if you're attractive. And even then, it never fills up the hole that it's trying to fill up. This is the kind of thing that we would expect an infinitely loving and an infinitely powerful God to do, which is to solve the problem infinitely. Now, I said a couple, I said, what was that last Sunday probably? I don't know, I can't keep track of this stuff. I said last Sunday that problems always have to be dealt with with a death. Any problem that you face, it could be a small problem like you need to put gas in the car. You remember me saying this. That's what's going to have to die to solve the problem of your car needing gas. Well, probably, you know, four or five minutes. You'll have to leave for work four or five minutes. You'll have to kill the four or five minutes that you were going to spend putzing around the house and leave the house a little bit early. Sometimes the problems are a little bit bigger. Your son needs help with physics. And you were going to, you know, watch something on Netflix. And that nice, quiet, sitting there and having something nice to drink and watching that show is going to have to die so that you can solve the problem of helping your son with physics. Sometimes the problems are massive. There's a genocidal, tyrannical maniac named Hitler. What has to die to solve that problem? Well, thousands of millions of people have to die to solve that. There always has to be a death to solve a problem. And whenever you're facing a problem, you always go into it, without, maybe you don't even think about it, but you always go into it kind of weighing, is it worth it to me? Is the cost worth it to me? Am I willing to kill five minutes of my morning to put gas in the car? Well, then you're, you know, you're winning. So if I, if I run out of gas on the highway, that's going to be a worse kind of death. So it's better to kill the five minutes. You know, it's better to, 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 to kill the pleasure of not having a dentist working on your mouth than to experience the death of dead teeth. Or you, you're, we're always kind of weighing that out. But sometimes it's too much. Sometimes the price is too much to pay. And you say, okay, I'm just going to deal with this. However, if the cost, if the death, if the problem is infinitely large, like the sin and brokenness problem of the world, and it's going to require an infinitely powerful death, it's going to take somebody who is infinitely powerful to die that death to solve that problem. That's what's happening at the cross. That was last week. That same person, though, if they're going to be motivated to take on the cost of their own infinite death, are going to have to be infinitely loving in order to pull it off. Else they won't be motivated to do it. 
if God is infinitely powerful enough to solve this problem of sin, but he can take or leave you, he's not going to be motivated to do it. But if the God that's described in Scripture is both infinitely loving and infinitely powerful, the resurrection of the Son of God made flesh is exactly the kind of thing we would expect to happen in the story because it turns out that it's the only thing that can be both infinitely loving and infinitely powerful. It's the only thing that can, can, can assess the infinite cost of the problem and pay the infinite price and still have infinite love and power left over after it's done. That's what Easter is. It's theologically real. Last thing, it's missionally real. This is what the angel says to, um, to, to the women in verse uh, 6. Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. This is kind of the theme of the end of all four of the Gospels. Like, go and tell. Women, go and tell the men who got scared and ran away what happens so that they can believe too. End of Matthew. Go into all the world and preach the Gospel to every creature. Go and tell. When Jesus rises from the dead, it carries with it this missional impact so that when it's announced to people, the Spirit, more on this next week, the Spirit uses it to pull them into the reality of the resurrection as well. Go and tell. Now, why do I say it's missionally real? Because that's exactly what happened. This little band of nobodies, actually, these three or four women are where it starts. They begin telling people and it spreads. So that within 10 to 15 years, have you guys heard this? Within 10 to 15 years, people in Gaul, people in Persia, People in North Africa are starting churches to say, somebody told me that this construction worker got killed for a crime he didn't commit, and then three days later he rose from the dead, and I know this is going to sound crazy to everybody, all of you in this city, but that's actually changed my life. It's like pulled me into this universe where love and justice and peace and righteousness are the coin of the realm, and I don't know what to tell you except I heard the news, and like I'm convinced it's real, and people start believing it. The early church blows up. This is one of the best arguments for Christianity. I told you I was going to give you one more, and I'm just going to try and make this quick. The story of the killed construction worker who came back from the dead is the most bizarre, on one level the most unrealistic, the most unbelievable, and yet at the same time the most impactful, culture-changing story in the history of the world. So much so that it's, it's caused people who, who even choose to reject that Jesus rose from the dead and that means that God is now the Lord of the universe. People who reject that still have to grapple with it to this day. Because what do you do with all these people who believe it? Sometimes people believe crazy stuff, but not stuff that they know is crazy. People will die for a lie, but not lies that they make up unless they're convinced that that lie is true. People, however, will never die for a lie that they know is a lie. But that's exactly what happened. There's a, um, a guy by the name of E.P. Sanders. Again, he's not a believer. He's a secular. He's actually an, um, um, a Second Temple Jewish scholar. I think he's still alive. He's, uh, not, again, he's not a believer. He doesn't believe in Jesus and the Trinity and all that stuff. He uh, teaches Second Temple Judaism and the, the Second Temple literature at Duke University. His name is E.P. Sanders. And he wrote, he wrote a bunch of books, but he wrote a book a few years ago called The Historical Figure of Jesus. And again, he does not believe in Jesus. 
Let me tell you what he says about the resurrection. He looks at all the accounts. He asks himself, as an historian, he asks himself the question, why would Christianity grow like it did if it wasn't true? Some religions grow fast. For instance, Islam also grew fast, but that was because they had swords and they said, if you don't say, if you don't agree to this, we're going to kill you. Christianity never did that in the first hundred years. You know, unfortunately, we have uh, the crusades that we have to grapple with. But in the first two to three hundred years, Christianity never did that. It was all word of mouth. E.P. Sanders looks at this and says, why is this possible? And here's what he says. I don't regard deliberate fraud. See, he doesn't want to say, he said, I don't regard deliberate fraud as a worthwhile explanation. They didn't make this up, he's saying. This is not a lie. He's still holding out hope that somehow it was some sort of big mistake. But as a historian, he's like, I just don't have good evidence for that. Many of the people in these lists, the list of people who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead, were to spend their re the rest of their lives proclaiming that they had seen the risen Lord, and several of them would die for their cause. Again, let me remind you, this is not a believer who's saying this. Moreover, a calculated deception should have produced greater unanimity. Super important point. If the deception, if the fiction of the God who rose from the dead was being, hey, let's get together and let's say that we actually, you know, that we stole his body, what Matthew says at the end. We stole his body and then let's make up this lie. You would expect there to be greater unanimity. But in the four Gospels, you get wild, widely divergent details, which is exactly what you would expect you know, ask any police investigator, ask any lawyer, if you interview four witnesses about the same event, you know they're telling the truth. If they describe the same event, but they do it from different perspectives with different details. If any of those four people, their, their details match up exactly, investigators always know they collaborated beforehand to organize their story. But that's not what you get in the four Gospels. Sanders himself, not a believer, recognizes this. Moreover, a calculated deception should have produced, a great, produced greater unanimity. That Jesus' followers had resurrection experiences is, in my judgment, a fact. Now, he's not a Christian, so he has to throw in the next line. What the reality was that gave rise to the experiences, I do not know. They had this experience, and it was real, but I can't say what it was. See what he's doing? He's recognizing there's missional reality to this. The fact that all these people saw it, died for it, the fact that it spread like crazy, is a sign that it's real. Now, it's not that it did have missional reality. It now has missional reality. Why is it that some of us are here in Glen Carbon, Illinois, 2,000 years away, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away, insisting that this construction worker who was killed and rose from the dead is actually the secret at the heart of the universe? Do you know why? Because it's real. It's historically real. It's psychologically real. It's theologically real. It's missionally real. This is our reality, God in flesh dying for us, rising physically from the dead to renew our bodies and to renew all of creation. Stand with me and let's pray, and we'll have communion. God, we thank and praise you for being such an unbelievably great God, for, for being the infinitely loving one, for being the infinitely powerful one for conquering death, for fixing all the problems which we as humans have caused, and for doing it in a way that brings glory to yourself without diminishing at all your holiness or your power, or your strength or your love, and also completely rescues us and your whole creation. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we confess that we don't always live in this resurrection reality, that we worship other lords, not resurrection lords, 
but the dead and dying lords of our culture, lords of power, political power or self-power, self-will, lords of pleasure, money, the lords of sex, the lords of food, the lords of material things, all these things which are quick to abandon us and never give us the psychological, the historical, the missional, the theological reality that your son's resurrection does. Forgive us for that, Lord, and point us once again wholly and completely to the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Lord, in your mercy. God, we thank you for this mission. We thank you that you've allowed us, that you've chosen us, your people here in Glen Carbon, not just our church, but every other church which confesses your gospel, that you've chosen us to be on this mission of spreading the good news of the risen God here. And we also thank you for the impact that we see that it makes. And we pray that you would allow us to see more and more impact. God, may your Holy Spirit go out in front of us and may it rescue Glen Carbon. We want to see every single square inch, every single person in Glen Carbon confess you as Lord, confess that you are the God of the universe. Lord, in your mercy. We can only confess these things, Father, because you've loved us, you've united us to your son, Jesus, by his death and resurrection and in our baptisms and in the faith that you create in our hearts. You make us one with him so that we come into your throne room as your daughters and as your sons and we sit on your lap and we speak to you because you're our dear father. And so we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you can, confess with me the words of the Nicene Creed found in your bulletin. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, 
Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. How can it be the one who died has borne our sin through sacrifice to conquer every sting of death? Sing, sing hallelujah. For joy awakes as dawning light when Christ disciples lift their eyes. Alive he stands, their friend and king, Christ, Christ is arisen. Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. Oh, sing hallelujah. Join the chorus, sing with the redeemed. Christ is risen, he is risen
Please stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.
Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Happy Easter. Go in peace.